0: Hi, my name is David Siegler, and welcome to my podcast. (laughs) And we're live. Good morning, David. How are you, sir?
1: Good morning. How great to be here. Thank you, boys. I'm honoured. Honoured.
0: No, we're honoured. This is mine and Rob's very first joint podcast. So last week, I introduced Rob as the new guest on what it will be called Podcast Property, but what it's currently called the Property Investors Podcast. And I said to Rob, "Let's who's going to be the perfect first guest for us? And we both completely agreed it was yourself. Wow.
1: D- well, know, we were, we I... were drunk at the time when we agreed that. <laughs> well, I was no idea I was so, you know, embedded into the subconscious of property people in the United Kingdom. Today. But, um, you know, I, I'm You're like a at deity, David. David. Yeah. <laughs> so David,
0: I've got, I got a quick question for you. Do you remember how we met? Or do you even remember meeting me? Shit. Yeah. Yeah, so, right. But there's a funny story behind it,
1: I'm, and I'm glad you don't remember. <laughs> but, Tom, do you know what? Um, I, I don't want to sound like a knob now, right? but yeah. I've been um, involved in presenting and, and big events in property for five, six years now. Yeah knows what so they keep sending me emails and say oh David would you come back and do this and come in, oh, I never understand it but anyway they
0: do so uh, then, so right so this see if we can we jog your memory
1: well people come up to me and say oh David how are
0: you, um, you know, we've <laughs> oh, met yeah right. we've met yeah, who yeah, and are, I, you. A I saw you at an event in London and yeah, the, oh, but, but this was particularly good so I was on a train I was eating probably the world's hottest
1: burrito from Victoria you're Station. Tom, you you're one of the burrito boys. I am. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, you tell your version and I'll tell mine. So, so, I do remember.
0: Yeah, so, so I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm with my ex-business partner and we are eating these burritos coming back from a night out with Rob and a, and a few oh, of the boys. I was at the other end of the train. other the end time. of the train. Oh. And we're eating this hot burrito and we're talking about something about property. And, da- and David pops his head up because he's literally sitting opposite us in the little booth and he goes, can I just ask what you gents do? And we we started talking, then we got this conversation going. But throughout the whole conversation, I couldn't say a word. My <laughs> mouth was literally on fire, and every question, David, I was like, David, I can't answer. I can't
2: answer. <laughs> and then I came, I came waddling down with my with my extra large. Burrito wrap
1: thing whatever it was. <laughs> well, I've got a slightly different recollection of this. Oh, no, um, you're, you're g- g- sorry. G- well, I was, um, at that time, hosting a network meeting in London, the Mayfair, Progressive Mayfair property Meet, And, you know, it's a long day for me, guys. You know, I'm sitting there, so I waddle back to the train from Mayfair, and I find that quiet bit. There's nobody sitting there and I'm leveraging my uh, Senior Citizens Rail card. <laughs> um, Who'd you, and thought, st- who you steal that off? Who'd you steal that off? You're not old enough for one of them. Yeah, oh, bless you. <laughs> uh, so um, I'm sitting there, I think it's cool, you know, it's been a long day, um, I'm going to have a bit of a nap, at which point you know, the, the, the world when it's turned upside and this noise, and three or four or five of I mean, were well, there. You turn up and the smell was just staggering, right? Because you come from, from the. So, and they're all stuffing and spilling. Spill it was a spillage and the. I'm in the splash zone with all these bits of burrito lying around, right? And you start talking about, you know, property stuff. Probably, and you know, it's got my attention and, and, and stuff like that. And um, <laughs> I, I did ask the question, you know, what do you guys do? And it came out, and and one of you, one of you, and I'm pleased. I can't remember who it was. Said, um, "What do you do? Because I just strike to on right? Because of the network event." And I said, oh, "Well, you know, I was trying to do." It was, Modest and modest. You've
2: right. got a pool, weren't you, David? Yeah, well,
1: actually, you know, I'm a of I'm a thing in the, in the industry, you know. I'm, um, I work as progressive. I'm trying to I work with Rob Moore and one of your colleagues went, ah, Rob Moore, money, money to book, money. you read, but you've, you've read Bob Moore and it sort of developed from there. Yeah. And um, what came from that evening was the relationship that I built with Rob Holmes on this uh, podcast episode, which has been, um, Mutually beneficial. Um, you know, we've we've helped each other a lot. Robby's Robbie's Robbie's he's like the Gandalf of all things um, property <laughs> finance, isn't he? So um, yeah. Cool. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I've tweaked the memory. That, then
2: that makes you Frodo, Tom. It
0: does. <laughs> I, I tell you what. Yeah. Uh, between the two of us. <laughs> Uh, Right, so what we do is we love to start the show by asking you to introduce yourself. Really, I think it's always a really nice way of starting everything. Getting your impression of where you've come from, where you are, what you've been up to. Um, But you can dial back all the way from sort of childhood and explain sort of your education, what got you into property. But but it's your sort of time to just really give the listeners your. Your history, okay. In okay, so
1: David Siegler, the early years. Here we are. I'll <laughs> take you up to 1964, <laughs> and then we'll move on. Um, so um, I, um, I went to university, got a law degree from uh, Leicester University in the seventies. Young hearts run free. I was there, and um, then I went into the family business, which was a retail business. So we had shops, and I did that for a lot of years. But along the way. Tom and Rob, uh, we were given the opportunity to pick up some of the freeholds, not all the freeholds. We got up to 20 units at our peak, 20 retail units. Um, And I didn't understand why I needed to get these properties. I understood uh, a little bit. I understood that it would transform the balance sheet over five, six years if you had a freehold property and the banks liked it, because for security and stuff like that. So we picked up some of those freeholds and then we, jumping forward, I was still, you know, I was still retailing. It's all, you know, buying and selling and staff and all that malarkey. So I was all in. And then in 1992, there was a bit of financial unpleasantness. We were before your time, boys, I think, but Chancellor Lamont, um, we were forcibly expelled from the ERM, which was the forerunner of, one of the forerunners of the Euro, and we came out of that, and there was a bit of um, upset in uh, the economy, and we, ha- we had to stop trading. But I kept the properties, because the business was set up like that. So we kept the properties, still have the properties today. And from that time on, I kind of focused more on property. Um, and for instance, this is how naive I was. We bought a building, retail building with offices above in 1977, right? It wasn't until 1997 <laughs> that we converted the offices into three. Wow. Times. Yeah. Well, I you, didn't care you, it. You
2: were it. You were doing the shops with top strategy before anyone even knew what it was.
1: <laughs> I didn't know what it was. <laughs> before you even knew what it was. I didn't know what it was. Like, we had a car park. We had a massive car park at the back of one of the units. And some of it, um, they built a road and a small town on half of it. Right, so that was a compulsory purchasing with the council. But we still had this car park. And it wasn't till early 2000s that I realised I could get planning on it. For a block of four apartments, right? So uh, I did that. We, it cost us about seven grand with all the fees at the time. And we sold off the plot of land with planning. And it brought 115 grand in for seven grand worth of outlay, right? So at this point, I was getting more attuned to what was going on. Uh, and then all the retail units and all the flats converted above, right? And at, um, at this
2: stage, at this stage, was this all kind of forgive me for saying, but kind of bumbling your way through a little bit of luck, no kind of guidance, no one kind of helping you or holding your hand, just kind of, yeah. it just was. Yeah, nothing's
1: changed. Really, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, that was going on, uh, but in my work with my wife, my wife had um, a yeah, pretty good job, fortunately, <laughs> because... The 90s were a bit of a um, black and white time for me. Um, I got into, I've always been in sales. I'm a salesman. Uh, I've been selling some, in, in some arena or another, retail one-to-one. Uh, and in the 1990s, I went out and sold during my black period there. I went and sold life insurance. Guys. I sold pensions. Right, um, I, was I, think, I think a lot of
0: people that were around in those days as salesmen now, that was the real grounding, wasn't it? Cause my dad, my dad's colleagues—they were all insurance salesmen. It was the—that was how you sold in those days, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely, and and it, it was a tough school, and I didn't realize at the time. Uh, but you know, cold call Wednesday, you know. Smart and dial. <laughs> absolutely. stand <laughs> <Yeah>, standard, <laughs> smart and dial. Who would hang
0: know? up on
2: you,
1: David? <laughs> <laughs> we'll to you for days, mate. Do you know what? People are generally very nice. I mean, I, I, I don't think anyone. I never went through some of the stuff that, that some of my colleagues went through. And we used to go through, uh, we used to have those little stands in Texas Home Care, of blessed memory, right? Um, and then come through the till, and we'd, like, we'd, we'd sell them a free prize draw ticket to get their name and address and phone number, and is yeah, it all right if I ring you during the week, and all that malarkey, right? So I did all that stuff, and then the birth of the buy-to-let mortgage was 1996. It didn't, exa- it didn't exist, young people were surprised to hear, it didn't exist before 96, you used to have to get a commercial loan before that. And my wife and I decided to put together a buy-to-let portfolio, right? She was working, she was employed, I had the time, right? Because all this other stuff was just fluff and nonsense, really. Um, and that, so we started to put together a buy-to-let portfolio. Um, Two thousand four, five, six, seven were good times. It, for no, me.
0: can I ask what was it that really twigged you to go down the buy-to-let route? Because in, in those days, in the early days of buy-to-let, still property wasn't re- wasn't anywhere near what it is today. It's not sort of yeah. it wasn't seen as an investment. So there must have been something in you that for. This is oh. going to go somewhere because it, because it was after that that it really started to take, wasn't it?
1: Well, I'll tell you exactly what it was, Tom. Um, I'll give him a shout out because he won't listen to this. <laughs> well, he might do. <laughs>
0: We've got loads of listeners. He will do. I'll send <laughs> it
1: to <laughs> him. <laughs> okay, so I've got my uh, background from the retail world, right? So I, I know property is a thing, right? I've got that, and in fact, all my experience at that point was on uh, commercial. So my background's commercial, you know, leases, options to buy, all this malarkey, but I didn't formalise it. I just learned how to do it, all right? Mm. But during that black period in the mid-90s, there was a gentleman called Barry Hill (coughs) who was in the fabric game, right? He he was a a ladies' clothing manufacturer. All that stuff, all that stuff got hammered by the Far East when the world moved on at that point. But he used to do that, and what he did... If he saved up a few bob, he would go out and he'd buy little sits in, that's what we called them in those, what they call now, studio apartments.
2: Bedsits I remember, in, I re, I remember you telling me this story over a coffee. You yeah. like this, Tom. You like
1: this. <laughs> it's true. So Barry went out and he started buying these little studios in Brighton. And when he started buying them, they were like 15 grand. <laughs> and he's buying these shit. I'm smelling horrible <laughs> things. He's caught, come and have a look, There, Come and have a look. He's, he's from Glasgow, but I'll, I'll spare you the accent. Um, so come and have a look. I went and had a look I thought, really? You know? And he, was, he bought me 15 grand. And then they went up to 20 grand. and I laughed. 20 grand? Really? You know? And then there were 25. And then he started buying ex-council houses in Brighton up in Morse yeah, thirty thousand pound he paid for a semi-detached house. Oh, I roared and roared. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so I,
2: let, let me stop you there. You roared and roared. Why? What was what? What was the average house price back then?
1: Well, that's the point. He was paying thirty grand for a thirty grand house. Well, right, I mean, there was okay, nothing cool. clever. Nothing clever, right? But of course, what I didn't know was during that period, you know, pretty much from then, but certainly accelerated in the early two thousands. Those bedsits are now. <laughs> 130 grand, right? Uh, the house, entry level house in, in Brighton today is 300 grand, 280, 300
2: grand. Does it? Sorry, Does it make you feel a little bit sick when you, when you think about that? Because I know I would feel sick if I could have bought bedsits for 15, 20 grand and houses for 30. Yes. And it would be worth 10 times that now.
1: Y- yes. Yes. I mean, yes. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we'd be, you know, on a Friday, you come into the office, right? you come into the office, and we'd be sitting there, because Friday's orders day. So I'd be... Sitting by the fax machine, I know you young people don't remember fax machine, but we were sitting by the fax machine for the orders, right, for the fabric and the, the stuff that we could go out and we could sell in the shop. Friday we'd be sitting there like that, and Barry had come in and he'd say, Boy, boys, you've got to come have and look at this, I've just bought another house for £17,000, right? And you, you've got to, no, Not now, Barry, not now, we we're waiting for the orders, right? And um, of course he was right. And he's now, he's now got a flat in Monte Carlo, and drive, <laughs> driving these big fuck off cars, and you know, you know, and he doesn't wear it well. You know, if you're listening, Barry, <laughs> you've changed. You've changed. I preferred you when you were poor and miserable. <laughs> right. um, but it was, it was actually uh, down to Barry Hill where the penny finally clunked yeah. to the bottom of the.
2: So, so what what, did Barry ever say to you what made him start buying property? Did he know property was a good investment, or was it he was just making enough money to be like, I've got to do something with it? And he just got lucky and put it into into property.
1: Well, I think what you have to realize is Barry knows everything, right? So, (laughs) Um, it was people that he was, we would now call it networking, right? Yeah. It was people he was having coffee with once, twice a week, having a curry with once a month. Um, And in fairness to him, um, he fell on his feet there, or he was very wise and chose his company well, because those four, five, six people today are probably the go-to people in the around Brighton. If there's something that the state agent wants certainty and they want it moved now, right, then... The, the uh,
2: the, The little black book. Yeah, oh, that
1: the, the, the first page of the little black book, shall we say? Yeah, um, they are those people, um, you know, spooky, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, if, yeah, so and, we and go, I, think, so I, think so a, I was going to
0: say we go back right. to the story then because so we've we've gone around, so that was sort of what twigged you. So now you're going back into where you were going into starting to say, right, we're going to do this buy to let portfolio. You and the wife are saying, right, this is what we're going to do,
1: yeah, yeah. And then in 2004, we went up to Manchester. Why? Because property in Brighton was so expensive, Tom. <laughs> 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 well, property's always expensive, right? I could, you know, how long is it going to take me to save a deposit to buy in Brighton? If I go to Manchester and get four deposits out the same money, I can get four tenants, spread my risk, right? Because if you've got one property and one tenant plays the game, yep. it's a disaster if it's well, you've got three pounds mm-hmm. it's just inconvenient, uh, you know, and then capital growth, we'll get capital growth. You know, so my plan, our plan, we did, we, had, come on, we had a plan. Um, what were we going to do? We were going to buy 20, because property doubles every 10 years. We know that, don't we? Z? I think it's mm-hmm. an EU directive to that effect. And um, <laughs> our plan was oh, to We're in buy, trouble now, then, aren't we, if we're leaving? Oh, yeah, it's all over. Um, our oh, plan was to buy 20 properties on buy-to-let mortgages, because in those days, 2004, 5, six, you know, if you could mist up a mirror, <laughs> right, you, get, you got a mortgage, right? I mean, it was you did it on the phone, right? Um, so we were going to get 20, they double in value, we'd sell 10, and then we'd finish up with 10 for nothing, right? And my um, uh, what I needed at that point to make my life go round, I worked it all out, <clears throat> was four, why 10? Because well, I needed four grand a month, right, to live my life. And um, I had 10 at £400 a month. That was the rent where we were looking in the Northwest, right? Um, so I needed 10 without a mortgage on. And um, I figured, so I know, but that's what I did. And um, what I didn't account for was what happened in, in 2008 and property prices, certainly in the Northwest, took a hammering; they went down. Um capital growth where we bought not all of the Northwest but most of it, right? Um just about recovered by 2017 and now um where are we now? Guys, what's gonna happen now? Right. So are we on the way down again? So we've had no capital growth. So my business partner, I want to make this very clear, my business partner and myself between us bought 51. Little terrace houses between us and bits and pieces. All right over how long? It's about four years.
2: Wasn't it? Wow, that's, that's some going. good going. That is good going.
1: Well, you, you know, we built this uh, network of agents. It all came from agents, um, but agents were very different. Then, you know, <laughs> we, bought, we worked. There was one guy, bless him, he was telling selling uh, ten houses a week through his agency. And he had a M3 big, you know, wheels that big, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the equivalent of whatever it is today. And, of course, going around little terrace streets in Oldham, which is where he was based with speed bumps and and high curbs, so you, he <laughs> you would park it in the middle of the road. It just, it wasn't part of it, it, was abandoned, right? <laughs> and we'd go and do a view, and we'd hear him outside, oh, no, it'd be all right. where is he from? Because he want to scrape the wheels and all that monarchy. So, um, you know, happy days, these were golden times, right? 2008, it all went wrong. Um, so the bottom line is, gentlemen, and I am sometimes criticized for this, but I believe it to be true, if I bought just five properties in Brighton as opposed to being involved with the 51, I'd be in a better position today uh, financially than I would. I certainly wouldn't be sitting there talking to you two. On a <laughs> You'd be on a beach somewhere. <laughs> 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 um, and then, uh, so 2008, I'm nearly there, guys. Another couple of sentences. Is this what I'm going on too No, much? no, no, is I'm really right enjoying now? it. No, 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 okay. this is fantastic. It's actually what we want. So t- two thousand and eight, I didn't know anything Tom about joint venturing, about you know what creative strategies. I just knew about going to a bank, getting a mortgage, buying a house, <laughs> then you wait. Two thousand and eight the banks wouldn't lend anymore, credit crunch, they sort of drew back from property, didn't want property anymore. So but I couldn't operate anymore, because that was all I knew, going to a bank. And so I retired. And I was at home four and a half years. It's the most miserable four and a half years of my life. I um, watched a lot of daytime television. Um, I thought I'd play golf every day. You can't because (laughs) your knees hurt and your back hurts and your front hurts and everything hurts, right? And the the summer's all right. Because living in Brighton, it's pretty, no, but the winter, I mean, a day like this, I'm looking out the window, it's grey, it's miserable, it's horrible, right? What do you do? What do you do? So in 2014, I've been listening to this stuff and I went to a network meeting and I bought a set of CDs for nineteen ninety nine, and I got two free tickets to an event, right? And I went... You got,
2: you got hooked into a sales
1: funnel, didn't you, David? <laughs> well, well, okay. So I had started watching these two young men on Internet, um, Rob Moore and Mark Homer, and I followed all this stuff. And they were coming to speak at the Berkshire property meet, which in those days, 200 people a month, month in, month out. Wow. Uh, Sylvia and Jasmine Ray ran it. Right? I know it's hard to believe that, but it, we were there. the was a buzz in that place. And they were going to speak. Robert Martin was going to speak at the event. I thought, I've got to go because I'm like a fanboy now. I want to go. And are
2: they, are they uh, so obviously, pretty much probably anyone listening to this podcast will know who those two gentlemen are. In those days, were they relatively unknown
1: still? Uh, no, I think they were uh, pretty well known. I think they're at a different level now, but it's six years later, right? Yeah. So but you know, I knew who they were. I wanted to go see I to go see Rob, in particular I want to see Rob. And I'm at the Barclay property meeting, there's two hundred people and I'm sitting I'm sitting on the end of the of the aisle and there's a centre there and then there's the other chairs the other side <laughs> And Rob, Rob comes on and he's he's walking up the aisle and he's coming towards me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's, he's, yeah, I'm to reach out and touch it it's right there. I've never looked at me, it nothing to do with me. He had no
2: clue who I was, right? You know anyway. what? I wish I wish people listening to this podcast, you're going to have to go on YouTube and watch the video, I wish you could see the smile on David's face. Imagine <laughs> <laughs> imagining Rob
1: more, walking
2: up the aisle. Genuinely, you look so happy right now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so fan. Um, January the 24th, 2014, I went off to this three-day event in Peterborough, um... Uh, multiple streams of property income and men, in and I've got Cheryl came with me my wife came with me I talked her into it because I said we could turn the heating off for a few days it would actually save us money you know if we sat there um, <laughs> and um, everything flowed from there really and I had no idea no idea that four, five six years later I'd be standing I <laughs> mean look at me why would they let me do it um, in a stripy shirt doing the thing and you know I've been doing the thing ever since and I love it and I came out of retirement and I don't care what people say I, I just think it's joyous to be able to share with people and then you asked me onto the podcast
0: <laughs> I love. here the, we are yeah, I was going to say I love, I love the fact that you'd retired obviously we've you got yourself to a comfortable position where you felt that you was in a financial place where you go actually I'm, I'm done but then there was that fire in your belly that said I'm not done. I've got more to give. And I like mm. I love that you went down the education route in that I've got more to give, because you have unlocked a lot of people's futures, haven't you? You've as an individual have imparted a lot of wisdom on people that have enabled them to push for financial freedom themselves.
1: Well, I hope so. And that's the gift in it for me. Yeah. Uh, people say, Why do you do it, David? Um oh, they're trained and say we'll do it for the money. Well, Okay, we all need to be paid for what we do. I believe in fair exchange, right? Because yeah. I've been a salesman forever. However, I want to make it absolutely clear, my lifestyle has not changed. You know, I yeah. don't actually... i don't want to give too much, right? The financial... Okay, the um, costs of maintaining my lifestyle is maintained from property and other investments that we've made, right? I, did, I was in that position in 2014, right? Nothing's changed there. Okay, so anything that I've earned from property is in addition to that and basically remains untouched. Um, The gift for me, Tom, to answer your question directly, is that we can help some people. I wanted to help everyone, but sometimes you just can't help everyone, right? Yeah, I
2: agree with that. There there are are some people that... They, they say they want to be helped, but they either can't because of their circumstances or, or deep down they don't really want to change the circumstances, but that's a, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I, really, I really resonate with you about what you said about the retirement. And to, to, to bring Rob Moore in slightly as well, I know he's, 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 he's a professional retiree. He's retired <laughs> about four times or something, hasn't he? But, but I never used to get that. I never used to get, I get that now because it's like when we were talking, um, on the last session, Tom, about me stopping work and, you know, a lot of people want to give up work or they want to be financially free and not have to work or go live on a beach and that's great, but it sounds great. And the reality I think is very different in that I think I said, I, I, you just get bored.
0: Yeah, I've I've always said I'm I'm pretty sure when you when you look at sort of people when they retire they can do one or two things they become active or they become sedentary so they either sit there watch the TV and I'm pretty sure that's what makes people old now when you see an old person I think a lot I often generalise it massively but I think what they've done is they've sat there and said right okay I've done my bit I've retired and then I'm just going to plod along but you got people like my granddad for example so he's going to ukulele classes he's going to he's doing this and he's doing that and and he's really really active. And I, I genuinely believe that social interaction that getting out and doing stuff keeps him mm. young because he can mm. very easily sit on the sit on the sofa and watch cricket all day, every day. And then, and, but, I, but again, it, it comes down to that part in a lot of people that they have that, still have that thing in them that goes, I'm not done yet. I'm not finished yet. I've still got more mm. to give. Um, but if we get, so, so at that stage of your life, so you're famous for deal sourcing. Um, what was it that sort of made you go down that route? Because obviously you've done... Yep. and 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 built a portfolio but what was it about deal sourcing particularly that interested you two things so we
1: we dabbled with it back in 2006 7, five, six, seven because we we built this fantastic network of agents who, who were bringing us stuff because you know, we could deliver but we ran out of cash because you know even in the northwest you need deposits right So and the guy refurb, refinance model, which we exercised, although we didn't know what it was, right? Um, we did, did, you don't get all your money out. D, D, I, D, I don't care who it is. You might get an odd deal, which is yeah, of course, pay, yeah, yeah. right? But basically, we left little bits in. And by the time we'd left 15, 20 little bits in, it, it's all in, right? So um, we didn't want to say to the agents, well, thanks very much, guys, but we won't be able to buy anything now for two years because that's not going to end well, is it? So we just started... Coming So there's a 200-mile gap between Manchester and Brighton, where we live. And we just started talking about what we are doing. And we had all sorts of people come in. And and people have to, people, listeners, have to understand the culture of the time. So the culture of the time was invest, invest, about property, 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 right? So we had dentists, we had taxi drivers, we had um, all sorts of people in our lives coming to us so, so oh, those uh, those little terrace properties you're doing in Manchester, have you got any old ones that nobody wants? They're all Victorian properties, they're all old, right? <laughs> what do you do with um, 40, 50, 60 grand, you know, the first property I bought, I think began with a three thirty-nine something. Um, <laughs> going into 2008, I had a house, two bed terrace, in Lee Village. Um, in uh, just outside Oldham. a very first one at under offer at 101. It was under offer at six figures, right? So I've gone from 39 to 101 in four years. That gives you an idea. And thankfully, <laughs> everything stopped. And it's uh, one of the very few, I was gonna say the only one, but one of the very few deals I've pulled out of. But they went and sold it at 94 at that point. Um, so that's how it started. And then, so, 2014, I was sitting in the multiple streams room, and Rob Moore on a Saturday afternoon is talking about deal packaging, right? How to earn big amounts of money for a tiny little investment. Okay, and that's what I needed. I needed cash in my life. I had houses. I had you know, I had commercial stuff at that, but I, I actually didn't have enough cash in my life. So that's why, Tom, I got involved in it, and I, it started it for me. At that point, there was no prospect of me training other people and showing them how I did it I did it for me right? Uh, and so we built up from there and then um, I got involved in the training and I started sharing it with other people um, you
0: know, We steal a bit of that education now so, yeah. so, so let's pretend that I'm a listener that has absolutely no idea what deal sourcing is, never heard of the term before,
1: introduce me to it Okay, so deal sourcing, if you want to get into property, if you're thinking you haven't got the cash or you're not brave enough, but you like, you know you know that over time, you know, the British people know, in here somewhere, the property right, transforms your lives. Okay, if you want to get into it, I believe that deal packaging is the best way to get started on your property journey, because here's what I see. Initially, it's about the cash. Right, because what you're doing is you're finding an investor, do it this way round, team find an investor who wants to buy a house by taxi driver, stroke dentist, whoever, and then you go out and find a property to match their criteria. Right, you fact find with them, find the criteria, and you put the two together. So, the investor buys the house, you don't buy anything, but you get paid a fee for finding them the right property. Okay, and um, if you start, you get one, and then you get Another one a couple of months later, and then you know, if you're good and persist, you can get one a month. So, your fee is three to five grand, and that's before you scale into bigger deals, right? Three to five grand if you need three to five grand a month to replace your income, say, right? Deal packaging, deal sourcing is the fastest way in the property world to do it, and you don't have to invest anything in property, you don't have to set up you yeah. know, a rent-to-rent, rent. you know, you've still got to put money in, right? You've still got to do stuff. You've still got to yeah. take on leases or management agreements or responsibilities and tenants. Don't get me started on tenants, boys. Deal <laughs> yeah. uh, you don't get any of that. Well, if, you take, what,
2: if you take let for instance, you know, if you've got to put 10, 15, 20, 25, 40,000 in, if we talk South East now, 40,000 in as a 25% deposit, after your uh, mortgage and uh, management fees and all that, you might only make, you know, 200 quid profit on a, uh, on a, on a one-bed flat. So how many of those do you need, you know, 15 or 20 of those to get to the, the, the three, four grand when you could just sell one deal, right?
1: Well, absolutely. But the, the, the corollary, the add-ons are what hook me in because you learn by watching your investors you learn about the finance, you learn about what is good letterable condition, you learn what you need to run your portfolio. And you're getting paid, by the way, for for learning all this. And then um, three or four times a year, you know, if if you're serious about deal packaging, three or four times a year, something lands on your desk that you cannot in good conscience Um, sell to an investor for a three to five grand fee. Because, you know, hand on heart, we're seeing stuff, um, my training partner at Progressive has just bought something at 41% hand on heart below market value. Really, David, that can't possibly be. You know, I've never seen anything like that. Well, you're not looking hard enough, guys, because I've looked at the numbers, right, 41%. And um, so three or four times a year, you're not going to want to sell that on. So you talk to somebody like Rob, who can help you with the finance, who can put the thing together, because now you've got a bit of knowledge and background because of your deal packaging business in. And and suddenly what I see over two years-ish is moving from being a deal packager, and you, you still package deals, you can do that from day one, right? But over two years, putting together a really, really smart portfolio. And I've seen people get to five, six grand a month from the portfolio and they're in a position in their mid early 30s to retire. Right? Yeah. Whatever your definition of financial freedom is, all their bills are paid before they get out of bed in the morning, right? from yeah. property.
2: And it starts with deal packaging. I mean, ultimately, with that, you've got, you've got two choices on that deal packaging you've got the, uh, the idiot's choice, as I'm going to call it, it's the first one, <laughs> and, and then the investor's choice. And the idiot's choice is to deal package, make five grand a month ish. And live your lifestyle. But as soon as you stop doing that, the money's money going to stops, stop. Yeah. <laughs> if you were really smart about it, you're going to take that five to six grand, live off of 1200, 1500. And once a year, or it depends on, well, well, once a year, if you're down south, but maybe more, if you're kind of Midlands or up north,
0: you're going to take that money you've earned and use that as deposits. We talked, we talked about side hustles last week, didn't we? Um, yeah. we sort of said yeah. that for a lot of people that want to get into property, it's that little bit on the side that just brings in that extra income over, over and above what you're getting by your day to day that can then get you into where you want to be. And for, as far as side hustles go, this is probably one of the most profitable. And like you said, little to no investment in yourself, just time and energy and, and, and your own education, but mm. you can earn some good money and get things really rocking and rolling. Just don't buy it. Just don't buy a Rolex every time you
1: sell. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen, I've, you know, we've all seen that as well, haven't we? It's, it's about your investor database. If you've got people who want to buy and are in a position to buy, and they get it, right, um, you've got an endless stream of business. So it's not about the property. It's about the people, your investors, and then you can go and find what you need. And, um, yeah, the market ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've heard this year a lot that, oh, David, people are paying over the asking and, you know, estate agents aren't interested and blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff during COVID, right? And, yeah, that's been a temporary situation. But very interestingly, I think it was in August, one of our estate agents that we, because I'm still packaging deals today, right? Um, said to her, look, I haven't got anything for you at the moment, David, but I'm going to need you at Christmas, right? Let's keep talking. I need you at Christmas. And sure enough, the signs are there. I don't know what you two have seen, but the signs are there that, you know, we're, we're heading over the hill, you know, on the roller coaster. We're going to head down pretty quick. That's my genuine belief. Um, and I see it. I see it now. So, um, we are picking up in our deal packaging business uh, properties that we didn't get back in January, February, pre-COVID, um, that, you know, we were outbid on, quarter of a million pound properties, we're now picking them up 25, 30 grand below market price mm-hmm. at 10% or mm-hmm. below the offer price, below what we offered in January, February. And vendors was very keen to do it because what's happening is, and Rob, you all know this um, you, vendors agreed to buy at X, so market price plus, right, during the summer. Yeah. Yeah. Six weeks later, the lenders are saying, Well, we're not so yeah. sure about it's, this.
2: It's, it's been valued as well, and it hasn't come in at the market price plus <laughs> yeah. 400%, surprisingly. Yes. Uh, yes. And so they realize that they've got to either put more of a deposit in or, or, or lower the rate. And actually, funny you mentioned that on this on this podcast today. This morning I had an email personally. So I was looking at a um uh three-bed house where I invest. Uh in fact it's in a road where I've already got two and turned them into to HMOs. In fact you've been to see see them David. And um so there's a three bed house there and I put an offer in maybe three or four months ago at an offer that worked. The numbers were solid. Okay. Um, I didn't get it. It was overpriced anyway. So my offer was around the 240 mark. I think it was on at something like 285. It, it was overpriced, but it, it's a beautiful house, and it's actually not the standard I would go for. It's not a mess. It doesn't need a lot of work, but it does lend itself very well and fairly easily to be converted to a six-bed HMO, so that's why I was interested in it. But it went to someone else who, again, you know paid more. Uh, they were a cash buyer, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. This is the email I got this morning. Lo and behold, all of a sudden, they're not a cash buyer. They've <laughs> like got to Cash has disappeared pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, they've now got to sell something to buy. And I said, oh, it's that trick. Is it the old, oh, I'm a cash buyer, I'm a, I'm a chain free to hook you in? And actually, they're not. And I said, that sort of stuff really annoys me. when Because that, that's wasted that seller's time now. Yeah. You know? So, but but the thing is, is, I've had to go back to them, honestly, and say, well, look, you know, I may or may not be in a position to offer you the same thing I did three or four months ago. A, the markets changed. B, I'm I'm currently buying two other things right now. Like, do you know what I mean? So I don't want to mess those people around. But I, I get it. I see. I see that it's happening, and I think there are going to be some opportunities coming where, when the the frenzy
0: calms down, should <laughs> we say? So, yeah. so if we so we go back to so so now I'm fully aware of what deal sourcing is and deal packaging. Um, what would be my first steps? So let's say that I'm sitting and I'm listening in and go, actually, do you know what I think that's a great idea? That's something I want to do. Where 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 am I looking? What what how do I start this journey? Okay, so a couple of things.
1: The formal thing and the informal thing. Right. Um, I'll start with the informal thing, right? I believe deal packaging works wherever you are, right? So I made an error. In charging north in 2004, because I thought it was an easier pound, but actually, um, I was wrong, right? Uh, it's a different pound, but that's something else. So, wherever you are based, whoever's listening to this, um, I've, got listen- I've got listeners on my podcast <laughs> in Ho Chi Minh City. I <laughs> don't you know if it works in Ho Chi Minh City. It's right? so a morning, Ho Chi Minh City, or, or is it evening? Anyway, uh, wherever you're based, it works. It works in Brighton. But they're different sort of deals. It works in London. Fantastic deal. I mean, do people really think today, today, property deals, like this day we're recording it, property deals are not being known in London today. Of course right. they are, right? Fantastic. If you want to be really wealthy, obscenely wealthy, go and work in London, right? Um, yes, of course, for cash flow, the north of England, South Wales, those sort of areas, little terrace houses. Uh, for three to five grand fees. Yeah, absolutely, it works. But if your investors want wealth, it's got to be in London and the Southeast. It's just my personal view, guys. Yeah. Um, because of capital growth, proven track record and capital growth over time. I would, got, say,
2: I, I would say I agree with you. If your strategy long-term, and I'll put a name on it as I've heard it, or you didn't name it, but you were doing it. And that's the expansion and contraction strategy. So you expand for 10 years, you buy, you buy, you buy, and you build. You get that capital growth, as you said, property doubles every you know, 10 odd years or so. And then you start contracting your portfolio by selling off in order, not to send yourself to Barbados, but to you know sell two or three to pay off the mortgages on seven or eight. And, and so that kind of strategy, definitely in the Southeast. But I think Based on what you're saying, that that kind of long-term strategy wouldn't work so well further up north.
1: No, it doesn't. And the challenge for somebody buying in the southeast is to make sure the cost of ownership is covered from day one, uh, yep. and that's where education comes in. Because yep. you know, <coughs> a single let buy to let on Kensington High Street is not going to yield very well. You know, and it's not going to cover the cost of ownership. So we need to find a way, and yeah. the different strategies to increase cash flow in the interim until capital growth kicks in. If you want eight to ten percent yield, yeah, go north, to north, you know, up towards Hadrian's Wall somewhere, you know. But the cash flow there, you can get eight to ten percent, but it's taken two thousand years to get the forty grand, right? I mean, yeah. is
2: that what you need in your? Life? Well, that's, that's a really, really, really important point to people listening. Um, those that have experienced will know and understand this, but for anyone kind of new or anything like that, it's one of the most important lessons you can learn, I think. And someone once said to me, I can't remember who it was, but they they said capital growth doesn't put food on the table. And when they said that to me, it it clicked and it was like, it's fantastic owning 10, 15, 20, 50 properties that are going to double in value every 10 years. But if they're costing you 50 quid a month each to hold them, you're you're not going to eat very well for those 10, 15, 20 years. And it doesn't actually need to be that way. You so need you need cash flow to live month for month combined with capital growth
0: for, for the actual wealth building. So as a deal sourcing strategy, would you suggest to go along the lines of know your area where you live, find the investors that are are after that type of strategy. So if let's say I'm in Manchester, I'm I'm up further north and I understand the cash flow then I know that people down south, they know the south. So as, as a deal sourcer, would I then try my best to network in the south, say, look, I'm based up north. I know all everything about these properties. I know the areas I've lived here. Am I trying to find investors down south that are looking for that cash flow? And then vice versa, if I'm from the south and I know that I've I, the people up north are strong on cash flow, but maybe not getting the capital growth, do I then want to go up north and say, I'm going to network up north and meet people that have got these big cash flow rich portfolios that might want to sort of offset and try and work a way of getting some sort of capital growth into the mix as well.
1: Exactly that, Tom. And, and you know, this is a, that's a sort of microcosm of my deal packaging career because when I was selling in Manchester, and we we did over between us, we did over two hundred units uh, over those three four years in in Manchester. Um, almost without fail, the investment money came from the south of England, right? Because talking in today's terms let's talk today's money, right. You've got many, many, many people in the south of England who have got maybe 50, 60 grand that is not material to their daily life. It's, it's there. They want to do something. with it. Can you put it in the bank? You get an ISA. Nice, uh, I mean, my wife recently had a letter from one of her high street um, savings providers Right. cutting her interest rate right. <laughs> from <laughs> 0.2 to 0.02
0: yeah well, I think I know the bank I got the same letter and had some I from like 10 15 years <laughs> ago I've got about 2p in it and I got the same letter
1: yeah and then she's worried about I mean more than 85 grand in the bank account because it's a lot of people I know they might not be in your network of people who are listening to this but Mm. there's a lot of people with more than 85 grand. I mean, I sit in on uh, well, mastermind sessions as a delegate, not as a trainer, as a delegate. Um,
2: and people in that room have got a lot of cash. A lot I, of cash. I'm going to hold you there just for a second. You, you said something that I want to challenge. You said um, a lot of people have got more than 85 grand in the bank. And, and then you said, you know, maybe not people in your network. But I would challenge that and I would say, actually, I think you'll be for the listeners, I think you'll be surprised that there will be someone you will know that will have a lot more money in the bank than you think they have, and and they could be your investor in terms of if you're going to s- sell deals, or they could be your investor in terms of a joint venture partner if you want to buy deals or an angel investor. You know, you're going to pay them six, seven, eight percent a year. I, I I've got a friend. I've got a friend who um I was actually I was at like a barbecue or a birthday. Party with something like that. I hasten to add, not during lockdown. It was at one of those (laughs) one of those rare moments where we had about three days and six hours of you can have human contact, and um, and I was just chit chatting to her, and uh,
1: and she said
2: uh, we were talking property investment because she asked me how it was going and all that sort of stuff. And I said, and she was saying, oh yeah, my money's in the bank. And that's not really making much and, and all of that. And I was saying, well, look, you know, you've got loads of options. I never need to, and I suggest to the listeners, you don't need to do the same either. You don't need to sell yourself if you know what you're doing. So I was saying to her, look, you know, you could go and buy something. You know, you could lend the money to me. You could lend it to someone else. And I've got people I can put you in touch with, you, you know, can give you more on your money. You know, you're getting 0.02%, as, as you said, David. She had over 300,000 pounds in the bank that I had absolutely no clue. And I would never have guessed that either. If you said, you know, how much has this person got in the bank? I don't know. Most 15, 20 grand, over 300 grand. And you just don't know who's got it. And, and I couldn't, I mean, my jaw dropped and hit the floor. And then once I'd picked it back up and rolled my tongue back into my mouth and. And the dollar oh, signs come out god. of your eyes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like the wolf in the cartoon characters. I was like like that. I, I I literally said to her, "Oh my god, you are the stupidest smart person I know," because she is extreme. She's probably the smartest person I know. Um, but you can get really stupid smart people. I said, "Look, just go and buy a house, any house. Go on to Right Move. Go into an estate agent." I don't care what the house looks like. I don't care what state it's in. I said, go and put 300,000 in one or two houses or three houses and leave them to rot for 10 years if you want. She didn't want to do it. She doesn't want the stress of mortgages or investing or holding assets. I said, I don't care. Go and buy and just, just leave it there, let it rot. You will still do better than leaving 300 grand in the bank for the next 10 years. And she, she just couldn't make that connection. She just couldn't make the connection. And mm-hmm. I, and I and I was and it's none of my business. It's not my money actually. But she's a friend and obviously, you know, you want people to do well, especially your friends or you want people when you have knowledge that you know going back to helping other people David what you're saying, you want to be able to help people make at least slightly smarter decisions than than the ones they're trying to do, but oh god, I was exasperated. I was really gutted. Like Nothing to do with myself or having her as an investor or a joint venture partner, but for her knowing that I know she's one of those people that thinks she's playing it super safe and will leave that money in the bank for the next ten years, and actually in ten years it will be worth less than what it is today.
0: And I was gutted for her; I was really gutted. (laughs) So, so again, so right. So we've 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 chose. We know what deal sourcing is. We've chosen sort of our area and and what sort of route we're going to go down. So what what would be my next step?
1: Um, Well, I'm going to talk about compliance, Tom. I'm not going to deep dive into it here. Uh, We are regulated as deal packages, deal sources. um, And so there is a a set amount of criteria that we have to uh, go through. We've got to do registrations. We've got to have systems and processes in place, okay? And compliance is very important. I want to, you know, no matter how you're going to edit what I say, Tom, here on it. I want everyone to hear loud and clear that Dave says you have to be compliant, right? You do, it. okay. But you also have to know what you're doing. Bring me a good deal packager. Right? I mean, you know, the compliance thing can always be sorted out. But bring me someone who knows a deal when they see one, right? Who do, 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 you know hasn't got more registrations in their filing cabinet than clients. That's not what we want, right? We want somebody who can actually do it. Um, So, uh, if, if it's harder in the Southeast, right, the strategies are different. So, we need to think about assisted sales. We need to think about Rent-to-rent HMOs, we need to think about short leases on flats. We need to think about maybe using a floor area of flats to go from a one-bed to two-bed. Now, that stuff doesn't work so well in the north of England because the uplifts are not are not there. You know, the difference between a one-bed flat and a two-bed flat in Ashton-Underline might be the difference between 60 grand and 80 grand, right? It's not a up- big enough uplift. Uh, this you know, is a young person I know very well, just took a one bed flat to a two bed flat just south of London Bridge. Uh, the, the investor bought it for three hundred k and got a four seventy five revamp after the work was done. That, that's a that That's yeah. a proper um, proper fee for a deal packager, or yeah. is it one of those that you couldn't possibly sell and you've got to find a way of financing yeah. yourself. Right? So uh, you get those in the southeast, right? So uh, North cash flow just buy a house, 500 £600 pound a month, rent, right? If you get enough of them together over 12, 18 months, it can replace your income from your job. We'll get you out your job, right? If you want to be insanely wealthy, London and the South East. So on what you've just said, a
2: couple of things there in terms of um, compliance. So can you tell the listeners, A, what it means not to be compliant, what the... Consequences of that are if you are selling deals and you're not compliant. And also just dive a bit deeper into because I, I know the three of us here knew exactly what you were talking about, about having compliance paperwork, but not actually being a good deal source. And I, I think that's important is that don't let so you see it all over Facebook, for instance, you know, selling ABC deal, totally compliant deal source. So here's my registration. But what does it mean to be compliant? I mean, you know, Tom is a finance broker. I'm a finance broker. We've both got our CMAP qualification. Does not mean we're any fucking good? It's <laughs> it, it the world's best.
0: <laughs> though, what you're the point <laughs>
2: I've
0: I'm even got a is, dip for. I'm level four.
2: <laughs> the, the point is, it means we can pass an exam.
0: Yeah, <laughs> That's no, that is means. true. That is true.
2: And and is it the same? Is it the same in deal sourcing? How do you get compliant? It's, it's a lower
1: hurdle, right? Because actually, although we have to be compliant, right, there's no <laughs> law in the UK at this moment that so says we have to be competent, right? Yeah. That's a, it's a concept <laughs> that hasn't been considered by the authorities <laughs> up to this point, although it may be in the pipeline coming down the road. Um, so uh, being compliant means, well, it, there are four basic registrations, right? You, you, you have to have... Uh, professional indemnity insurance, two to three, uh, 250, 300 quid, make sure you get the right one. It's got to be a deal packaging, deal sourcing, PI insurance. If you've got your PI insurance, you can then register with a redress screen scheme. So it's uh, the PRS or the property ombudsman. They both work, right? I'm a TPO guy because that's who I registered with. Uh, but they both work. But they will ask you for your PI insurance number before you can register. Um, I'm going to throw in the data protection thing. You can register online with the ICO director at £35 a year. Why wouldn't you do that? Uh, Because we are looking after people's data. You know, we we look after their data, how much money they've got, stuff like that. So we've got to look after it properly. And then the one where people seem to falter is registering with HMRC for anti-money laundering supervision. And to do that, you have to have your PI insurance, because they're going to ask for the insurance policy number, and your redress scheme number, because they're going to ask for your redress scheme number. And you fill in the form online, and um, so I've been involved with this several times, for myself obviously, but for other people as well, and it says at every point during the form, don't worry if you have to stop and you haven't completed the form, your details will be saved for 28 days. And every time I've tried to do that, it's gone. Right. You can't find it. <laughs> so we're starting from there Right. And then um, you can only get into your anti-money laundering um, section, right, if you use this particular 12 number code for your deal packaging business. So if you put in your UTR or your other code number for your personal tax, you can't get in. And then I forget my password, so once I've got them right now, I can't get my password. So there's a help line. So you send the thing off. Can I? Do it? Yes, we we'll, we'll, Don't you worry. You're here within the next two weeks. Um, okay, but normally it's a lot quicker than that. And they send you a link to reset your password, but you have to do it in 30 minutes, right? <laughs> I might be doing something, <laughs> right? I might be in Tesco's. I might be having a bath. I might be playing. I've missed it by three minutes, you know, and stuff like that. So you have to ask for another link. And then you get, and I was on first-name terms with this guy last year, Mark, at <laughs> the other end of the email, Mark, it's coming again, I'm really sorry, I need it, I'll sit here and wait for you. And then, you know, you just answer the phone and you missed it again, right? So uh, what am I saying? I'm saying that the actual process of registering with HMRC is not a difficult one, but wrestling with their website, I just find, <laughs> you know, if you're listening, Mr. C. Um, it's torturous, guys. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to sort this out. Right?
2: What, what, would, what would be the consequences of buying a deal from someone that's non-compliant? Yep. And what would be the consequences of selling a deal if it went wrong, or you basically weren't any good and sold something that was just dog shit and you weren't compliant?
1: Um, well, it's interesting because the, um, to my mind... The penalties, the, um, uh, the the downsides for the saucer um, are significant, but they're not huge, right? But you have to be compliant, right? So if you're not compliant, obviously you haven't got PI insurance, so um, they, they're not going to pay out for anything that that your investor can prove you did wrong, right? But um, if you're not a member of a redress scheme and re- registered with HMRC, et cetera, you probably vitiate your insurance, even if you have got the insurance, you've got to do the whole thing, right? Yep. Uh, what are the investors' um, redress opportunities if you are not registered first? What can they do? They can take you to court, but what are they selling you for? And probably got no um, money to be sued for anyway. Well, exactly, but they're going to have to prove... So is an odd thing, because if you've a house for 100 grand, something goes wrong, right? It's not going to be a 100 grand claim, because you've still got a house, right? So you've got to yep. mitigate your loss. So, you know, small claims court, you can only... Up to 10 grand is your uh, maximum claim, probably, as to, with a non-compliant sorter, if they've got any money at all, Tom. If you are compliant, right, they can... Uh, go to your property. Once they've exhausted your significant um, complaints procedure, internal property, um, then they can go to the Ombudsman or PRS who will adjudicate. right? And uh, at the end of the day, um, the TPO PRS have the authority to, uh, to rule, and if you ignore their ruling, they can actually exclude you from the scheme. So then it is in unlawful, illegal to trade. Right. So if you're not a member of the redress schemes, you're basically trading illegally. Nobody wants to do that in principle, and it has repercussions going forward, okay? mm-hmm. as long as you understand what the repercussions are. So,
2: I, I want to talk about, for the people listening, because right. uh, I think in property, and I don't know if you two will agree with me or not, but I think in property there's an awful lot of hype And positivity, which is great because it helps people in certain certain circumstances to take action and make decisions and get involved in something they might not normally do, which could change their life. But I think you know there are negatives as well. And I, I, when I talk about property or finance or or anything with anyone, I always like to have a balanced view. So I want to bring in some of the negatives as well, and we can talk negatives just around deal sourcing. So can you give us some of the the negatives to being involved in terms of being a deal packager? What 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 are the bad things that you're gonna come across? You know, for instance, are you gonna spend three months building an investor list and they're all time wasters? Could that happen? Um, you know, what I've seen a lot on Facebook of people doing Facebook posts where they're saying, I've been ripped off by this deal saucer. I've been ripped off by that deal saucer. I gave them three grand. I've given them 10 grand. I've given them 15 grand and I've had nothing for it and I can't get my money back. I see a lot of that on Facebook. And I think people that are, are kind of looking into property and they're in some of these Facebook groups are going to have come across that as well. And it could be putting a lot of people off or making people very weary. So, so what are your experiences of things like and that? I, How I would I just, you combat
0: it? Can I just tag a question onto that as well? Because I think in that as well, can we talk about what an investor can do? So right at the end of answering that, can we talk about what an investor can do to make sure they're dealing with a legitimate, what things to look out for, what sort of questions to ask? That's, yeah, really good. That's really good.
1: Cool. Okay. So where do you start with that? I think it's, comes back to the principle of it being a people business. So the process that we go through, I now work with progressive sourcing in Peterborough, right? So you will understand that that, the processes are pretty sophisticated, okay? Um, The process that we go through is, we start with the investor first, right? And we qualify the investor. So how do we qualify them? We will not work with anyone who's not prepared to come and spend half a day on site with us um, so that they can meet the team, see some projects before, after, during. And it's set up on the basis, the appointment's set up on the basis that they can have a look at us, the lettings team, meet some builders if we're out and about, do, you know, just crunch some numbers with us. Um, of course, there's a corollary of that, but it gives us half a day to have a look at them as well. Are these people that we want to work with as deal packages, have they got the money? Is this, you know, is this is the first part of the dance that you go through, okay? No money has changed hands at this point, right, until we've built the relationship. And then uh, there'll be a, a back and forth and a back and forth. There'll be a fact find of exactly what the um, investor wants. Now, investors, if you are not going through that process, if you are just seeing someone advertising from a mailing list online, and they're asking for a reservation fee or maybe a complete fee upfront, do not send them any money. I mean, do I really have to say that out there? Right, David. Do, David. Yeah, you do. Yeah, well, apparently, you I do. actually do. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Send us five or ten grand, and we'll put together five properties for you over the next six months, and the cash flow will be this quick. No, they won't. It doesn't work like that. It's not how property rolls. You don't know, right, what you're going to find when you go looking, and and that's not how we roll. Now, we will take a reservation fee, right? We will take, um, we've got, again, progressive sourcing, you will understand, our terms and conditions go into several volumes right, and the contract goes out. You know who had them put together, right? Um, so, um, you know, every, every dot, every I is dotted, every T is crossed. But the bottom line is, from our perspective, the reservation fee, maybe 1,500 quid, is just one in a line of hurdles that we are using to qualify the investor because there's plenty of investors out there that haven't got any money, right? Yeah, so you don't yeah. really want to work with them because that'll end badly. So we're, we're qualifying, so uh, providing proof of funds or uh, an AIP, right, is, 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 is another little hurdle, um, agreement in principle from your broker or whoever, is another little hurdle so that we know once we actually go to work that we are actually working for somebody who can buy. I'm not saying they yeah. will buy, they can change their mind, that's all cool, right? So you're making the hurdles
2: just inconvenient or hard enough for time wasters not to bother but for people that are serious it's a, it's a stepping stone process to getting them from where they are to ready to buy but at the same time building relationship actually getting
0: to know that person and, and, a, yes. and, as, an, and as an investor you should feel comfortable that those sort of questions are being asked because it means that it's being taken seriously
1: yes but also as an investor you know, use your time to get to know the deal package, you take references. You know, put the shout
2: out there. You know. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That's really, really important. Yeah, I really like that. Really important, especially if you're looking at buying deals on something like Facebook or Instagram. Don't get sucked into how good a deal looks. I've had, I've, oh God, I've had loads of deals sent to me where I put them through my own spreadsheet and the 560% return turns out to be a 7.4 once you put your own numbers in and, and actually do the due diligence on the area, add in the sourcing fee that hasn't been put into the spreadsheet, all of that sort of stuff. But but yeah, so if you're looking online, do that, ask for recommendations.
1: Definitely. Now, I'm going to put a caveat in there because I'm human, right, and deal packages are human. Um, Just because a deal package might have had a deal that didn't go exactly the way it was planned day one, and it's probably... Investor-driven, up to a point as well, changing their mind on specs halfway through, and all that sort of malarkey, right? Yep. Um, do, do, okay. Do, can you find one unhappy customer in two hundred? Yes, of course you can, right? But you yeah. have to have a perspective. So I'm, I'm just putting that uh, caveat in there. But generally, um, if you've got a lot of satisfied clients, then you, there's there's nothing to worry about. So. I think what you're talking about, Rob, is the the Facebook packages that don't actually package, right? They just send stuff out. I've been on those lists. 20% BMV, everything's 20% BMV. And when you look, there's never anything 20% BMV. Those are not people you should work with. And please, 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 investors, do your due diligence. Look at the deals. Look at the area. Go. Go and walk the ground. It it amazes me that people will, want to buy remotely you know they, these are not kit kats we're selling right this is very high ticket stuff and you've got to do your due, due diligence i would never ever sell a house to anyone i never have who can't be asked to drive up the motorway and spend half a day looking yeah. at similar sort of projects well, i think that's key yeah um I've
0: answered the question. i lost my thread babe. Yeah, no, I think so. Uh, d- okay. Definitely. Um, I think we've been, we've been going for quite a while. I so know! Oh, do <laughs> I don't want to steal your entire day. Um, is there anything else you wanted to touch on or talk about before we wrap up? I've got two questions. Make them quick. <laughs> David's got an important day ahead of him.
1: <laughs> he hasn't. He's retired. He's got
2: nothing to do. <laughs> right, okay, so my questions are, I want to know what is the best deal you've ever done and what is the worst deal you've ever done?
1: What it Strong
2: questions, Rob. <laughs> and I think, do you know what, Tom? I think that'd be a really good finisher to every guest we have. Best it would deal be, actually, yeah, yeah.
1: Worst deal you've ever done? Yeah, but I had to go first, so I'm not, you know, I'm not prepared <laughs> here, am I? Uh, best deal. Let me come back to that. The worst deal I know. Yeah, every, everyone's <laughs> going to know what
2: the worst deal <laughs> immediately. <laughs> Because what I like about that is it shows you're human, as you said. It shows you're human. People make mistakes. I've had you know bad details, bad deals. Everyone will have. It, it doesn't mean you're not a good investor. Yeah, but I think it's important that people know because you just see all the all the good stuff on Facebook. Did this? Did that? All the money out plus five million pounds. But you know. I think, you know, we need to share those shit deals as well. So people kind of, you know, yeah, okay, yeah, they go through it too.
1: Well, let's I think... Start,
2: that, sorry. Start with the worst one if you know it. Start with the worst uh, well,
1: one. And they're both, ironically, in, in the same genre. So um, there's a natural flow to deal packaging, a natural growth path. So you go through single lets and then you get into more meaty stuff, okay? So my, my foray into HMO conversions... I was not an HMO investor. And um, I found a suitable property with the right footprint, you know, two-bed terrace to five-bed HMO, all ensuite suite model, you know, looking great. Found a builder who could do it, he said. Uh, and I, I, you know, I went and looked at his project. And apparently he could do it. Um, and iteration one, I've done... I've been involved in over 40 of these now, either in Manchester or in, in Pittsburgh with Progressive Let's Sourcing, right? Um, I'm on, we're on iteration 10 now. I'm, I'm very proud of iteration 10. I like it, no problem.
2: Is that the one you do with your eyes closed, your hands tied behind your back and without getting out of bed?
1: Well, it, um, Adam Seal does it, so I don't have to do any of that So, I'm <laughs> to shout so out yes, to then. Shout <laughs> out to Adam, who's my um, partner in crime at, um, I'm talking at Progressive uh, Sourcing in Peterborough. No, we got it. Right, sorted. Uh, iteration one, however, was not my finest moment, Rob. <laughs> um, I don't know why you're laughing. Um, you know, it, it was painful. Basically, um, at the beginning, I was introduced to a really bright young builder, who was cool, right? And he had two teams that he put together, and they all knew each other from school or family or later in-laws, right? And they ripped out two houses back to brick, right? Ripped them out with investor money. Investors bought the house. Investors put, and it transpires during coffee and conversations that in this team over here, this guy. Is having an affair with this guy's no. wife. Okay. And before I know it, he can't, she says he can't work with him and she's not going to work let him work with her and him and this. And, and they're all gone. Everyone's gone. And you've got an empty site. I've got two Victorian houses propped up on acros. <laughs> That's no, I didn't laugh at all. <laughs> and, um, you know, the builder, the, the young man himself, uh, was, you know, he, was, he turned up, but he wasn't dressed for work, and he had his little dog with him. It's a nice little dog, but it, it's not going to help much, right? And we had to put that together. So that, oh, that, was, that was hard learning. Right? That, was, that was tough, right? And um, the learning from it, if I may share, um, because, you know, I went to talk to my mentors um, about, what do I do? No, no, i fix it. <laughs> yeah, was it, was it a panicked phone call? <laughs> help me, me, help me, help me, help well, me. Well, you yeah, know, interestingly, um, it wasn't. There was some delay because I got massive respect for my mentors and they'd help me and stuff like that. And I, I couldn't bring myself to tell them what happened because I'd look such a knob, right? And I didn't want them to think I that I that. was, yeah, that incompetent. Although I'm not sure I never got any of it sex or anything? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm silver lining. No, no, no. So, um, how do you fix that? Right, work. Do not work with small builders who say they can do stuff. Right, work with what you think might be a bigger builder than at first sight you think you need for these, because they've got the systems, they've got the processes. Uh, they've got their internal project management. They understand the VAT issues, right? So, for, for what we were doing, those sort of projects, you guys will know, but now listeners may not. That the correct uh, VAT rate, um, VAT regulations seven eight, clauses seven and eight and thirteen, fourteen, written on my heart, right, um, is five percent, not twenty percent. Okay, five yeah. percent. Now, not form- know that. No, well. I had to learn it, didn't I? The problem with small businesses, some of them actually think the VAT scheme itself is voluntary, right? And you can't, you know, they're not even involved at that level, right? So, and also, their wives do their books, so 20% is the rate they use, right? And they're much more frightened of that man than they are of me, so we can Mm -hmm. charge 20%, right? And and you can't have those, they just won't engage, right? Um, so use a bigger builder, the new thing is appropriate. Why would a bigger builder take on those sort of projects? Because, this is my personal experience, we worked with a bigger builder who was doing big conversions, warehouse conversions into flats in Manchester City Centre, but he couldn't use all his teams all the time. There were always gaps and spots. So He would put them on our projects, um, and they weren't there... Monday to Friday, nine till six, but they would blitz for three, four days and disappear and then blitz for three, four days and disappear, right? They first time I ever saw a house spray painted and the finish was extraordinary. Yeah it, yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. They did it in the weekend. Well, I'm yeah. used to having, you know, a little bloke with a roller for 17 yeah. weeks painting, and, <laughs> painting a house in, <laughs> in Albany, right? So uh, that's the solution, just thought I'd share. So the worst project was just getting let down like that. Uh, Did it cost you a lot financially? Um, uh, we had to contribute, yeah, because I felt I had to. Yeah. Um, but in, to, fair, to be fair, the, the investors also took on some of the burden, but they got it. Yeah. I mean, if I could have put that <laughs> thing together, well, if I could have built it myself, I would have built it myself to fix yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, these, have, look, never done a day's work. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> hey,
0: soft. So let's, yeah. let's go positive. So what was the, what's, the, what's the best one? What's the one that sticks in your mind? As
1: One that opened my eyes to the power of property, right, so it's going back a bit, was that paper transaction for seven grand that I did to produce 115K, right? Uh, just getting planning permission and dealing with all the paperwork on that bit of car park in a property that I already owned. To um, sell it off for 115k, and and here's the real the, the kicker, and I didn't proceed with it. It was about three years later. They came back to me through an estate agent who had that block of flats. It had all been built up for sale, 180k for the flats. <laughs> right? I've got 115 for the land, right, and the four flats well... 180k. Well, it's, it's troubled times, right. Yeah. It's a people business. Tell me um, you bought it. Tell me I you did, bought it. I didn't
0: buy it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> cool. yeah. No, I think we'll, we'll wrap up there. Then, so how do people get in touch with you, David? What's the what's what's the best way of getting in touch if anyone's interested in ill sourcing or?
1: Yeah, so uh, Facebook Messenger. Message me there. Um, if we're not friends, send me a friends request. If we're not friends. You go into that weird file that on no that no can yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I messaged David six months ago, he never answered. Well you're in there somewhere, sorry. Or um if you join the progressive property community, I'm in there every day. Tag me. I'm in, I'm I'm there. Um, I'll pick up on it and and talk to and, you guys.
2: And your own podcast as well, David, because you have your own podcast. So, so my own the podcast, the name of that. yes. Property sourcing profits. <laughs> You, you, you've been a guest as well, haven't you, Rob? I have, yeah. I was very privileged. I was invited. Yeah. We went for coffee, didn't we, David? People, People still talk go-
1: about that episode. do they? Yeah. Oh, that's
2: cool. That's yeah, cool. there was some good stuff Who from was them. that dickhead you why, had have got no idea, because we were just waffling over <laughs> coffee, weren't we? we? We went down a coffee shop. We went down a coffee shop and David brought out this 60-year-old little handheld voice recorder thing like you see in the movie he's going to go reach for it now he <laughs> plugged it on the desk he it on the desk it looked like it had come out of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant
1: or something he I said what's that and
2: he went oh that's my little dictaphone I, said, okay. it, 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 I it,
1: went with it it's all you li- so when I started podcasting I bought all the gear I've got it all upstairs it was um, all handwritten so,
2: when you started it wasn't it David several
1: handwritten <laughs> handwritten podcasts right um Several hundred pounds worth of stuff I bought, and all you need, right, is a Zoom H1N, 80 quid from Amazon, and the, you know, a, a little mini card to go in it. Yeah. And um, there was nothing wrong with the way that episode came out. It right? sat on the <laughs> table between us. I've oh, done plans, loads of stuff like that. Loads of stuff. Brilliant. No,
0: thank you. Thank you so much, David. Um, Thanks to Kevin, David. Really, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, before we sign off, I'd just like to say a few things. So if you'd like to follow us, you can. We're so on all the socials, so at Podcast Property on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, anywhere you think you'll find us, you'll be able to find us. Um, Obviously, make sure you subscribe. So we're on all of the podcast channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc, etc. And obviously now we are doing video. So this will go up on YouTube so you can see all of our pretty faces having a laugh at 10 a.m. on a lovely Monday morning. (laughs) But no, thank you so much, David. I really enjoyed that, mate. I hope you have a great day. No, thank you for the invitation. Good luck, boys.
1: Thank you for listening I am David Siegler. See you on the next episode.